0: The last time we heard from Samuel the prophet was back in chapter 8, where he had received news that the people were desirous of having a king, and he had consulted the Lord about it, and the Lord said, give him a king. And so Samuel later anointed the king of Israel, Saul, who we heard about last week in chapters 9 through 11, and saw some of the fall and struggles and sin that's present in Saul even from the very beginning. Samuel comes to the people now again and gives them a farewell address of sorts. It's a retirement speech. Now this is not Samuel's end as a prophet. In fact, you're going to see throughout the rest of Saul's life and even up to David, Samuel continues to live and minister as sort of prophet emeritus among the people of Israel. But he recognizes his leadership is over. The period of the judges is complete, and God has given Israel the king that they demanded in the person of Saul. The last time Saul was with them, he led them in a bit of revival. Right In chapter 7, we saw the people, after experiencing all that they experienced as the ark traveled throughout the land of Israel and were being humbled by the Lord, that they cried out to the Lord, and Samuel was instrumental in leading them into that process. And then immediately on the heels of that, They go right to demanding a human king in chapter 8, and we saw how that played out in chapters 9 through 11. Perhaps some of you have heard the reports this week about the revival taking place on the campus of Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. A campus chapel service on Wednesday uh, did not end at its appointed time, uh, but rather it carried on for days on end. Students lingered and prayed and repented and worshiped, and then students from surrounding universities and parents began arriving to see what appeared to be a powerful move of God's Spirit. Traffic jams began filling up and accumulating in Wilmore, Kentucky this week as countless others came to Asbury to see what was happening. Now, I know some among us might be more tentative about such things and be skeptical or reflexive in our responses to such events. After all, we've been raised over the last hundred years, especially on shallow revivalism. However, I don't think we should become cynical, but rather prayerful and hopeful about such news. In fact, I've gotten choked up a couple of times this week seeing videos and reading stories about what seems to be a genuine outpouring of God's Spirit among our Methodist and Wesleyan brethren. So I'm mainly encouraging us to pray a couple of things. One is that we would pray, God, let it be. Let your mercy, your spirit, your grace pour down in genuine revival. Let all these reports be established. And God forbid that it would end in Wilmore, Kentucky. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry, while others, while others thou art calling, do not pass me by. You know, it's the nature, as we've even seen in the book of Samuel, that revival can't really be measured until it's given a few days. In fact, months, and sometimes years afterwards. In fact, one writer helpfully says, how do we know if God is really at work among a people? Well, it's not how high you jump, but it's how straight you walk when you land. We see this among the people of Israel. They jumped pretty high in chapter 7. And they fell pretty low in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. But Samuel comes back in chapter 12 and says, you can still walk straight. It's not too late. I know all of this has been... A bit of a political charade that's taken place in Israel. You've chosen a king that God has not chosen. He's been anointed, he's been accredited, he's made great achievements in battle, but he's not the king you need. And he's not the king you truly want. And so Samuel comes to the people of Israel this morning with words of both comfort and warning. And so we're going to see four things this morning that Samuel gives in this retirement speech, which not only apply to the people of Israel, but also apply to us as well. And so let's dive in this morning and let's consider what Samuel says. Did it really have to happen this way? Did it have to go down this way? Yes and no. We'll consider that as we walk through chapter 12 this morning. First of all, Samuel says to the people of Israel, your prophet was righteous. Your prophet was righteous, referring to himself. See, Samuel's speech here is made at Gilgal at the official inauguration of Saul as king. It's something of his last will and testament, his farewell speech, his retiring prophet address to the people of Israel. And while his words in this chapter can sometimes appear a little bit self-defensive on the surface, what he's actually doing is exposing his integrity as a prophet, in contrast to what Saul will be and will become. And he's calling on the people of Israel to hold him to account if he has violated any of that sacred trust that has been given to him. And he illustrates this in a couple of ways. First of all, Samuel says in verse 1 that he has done exactly what the people have asked. Look at verse 1 again. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you he begins by stating the obvious. King Saul is not here because Samuel wanted him to be here. King Saul is here because the people wanted him to be here, and God acquiesced to their wishes. We read of the people's demand for a king in chapter 8, alongside Samuel's warnings of what would become of Israel under that king that they so desired. And in the end, despite these warnings we read in chapter 8, verses 19 to 22, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice, make them a king. He did what they wanted. He did what God wanted. Secondly, Samuel has not only done what the people have asked, but Samuel has done what God has commanded We just read that in chapter 8, but read it again in chapter 12, verse 2. And now, behold, the king walks before you. You asked, God commanded, I delivered. We read in chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You shall appoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hands of the Philistines. And we know that's what Samuel did. Chapter 10, verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? Samuel did what the people asked. Samuel did what God commanded. Yet Samuel not only did what God commanded concerning the king, but also what God had commanded concerning Samuel himself. Notice again in chapter 12, verse 2, the second half, Samuel says, I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. He's an old man now. He served Israel his entire life. The life that began in Hannah's womb over the course of a prayer in chapter 1 and chapter 2 came to fruition in chapter 3 as Samuel grew up and ministered in the house of Eli, the high priest. Remember that Samuel was raised in the priesthood. And was set apart by God as a prophet to Israel. And even amidst a corrupt priesthood, Samuel faithfully ministered to the Lord. In chapter 3, we got a glimpse of Samuel's sensitivity and his integrity regarding God's word. That even as a young boy, Samuel had engendered respect among the people. We read in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that's the entire course, that's like saying from Maine to California across the entire land, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And even as he grew into adulthood, he served and remained faithful to God, both in times of extraordinary revival, as we saw in chapter 7, and in times of ordinary ministry, like we read at the end of chapter 7, in verses 15 and 16. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year after year, and he judged Israel in all these places. Samuel has been faithful, both to the people and to the Lord. And so he asked them to examine his claims. Look at verse 3. Here I am, Samuel says to the people. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Of whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bride to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I'll restore it to you. What's Samuel doing? Well, he's, remember the warnings that he gave back in chapter 8. The king that you want will take, and take, and take, and take, and take. And Samuel hasn't, or Saul hasn't begun to do do that yet. He will. But in contrast to Saul, Samuel holds himself up and says, what have I taken from you? I haven't taken anything. Tell me if I've taken anything. Is there anything I've done that I need to make restitution for? Anything I need to make amends for? Contrast, in contrast to Saul, Samuel has been among the people of Israel as one who has not taken. He'd not been a king like the nations. Or a corrupt judge like his own sons were. And the people agree. Samuel had not compromised his integrity as he sought to lead the people. Either as a priest, as a prophet, or as a judge. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. They said, you've not defrauded or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day, that is Saul, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of, no doubt, a people of Israel that are not altogether grateful for Samuel's investment in them, lifelong ministry to them how quick they departed from Samuel to look immediately to a new king however he still maintains his humility before the Lord and before his providence in Samuel's life in the people of Israel's life and in Saul's life and in the midst of this he still promises to pray for them at the end of the chapter he says moreover as for me Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. And until his dying day, he continued to speak the word of God to them, and he continued to pray for them. The prophet was righteous, wasn't he? We saw that in the first five verses. Samuel's faithfulness in contrast to Saul, his faithful integrity to do all that God had demanded and commanded of him. And brothers and sisters, we have a prophet greater than Samuel. The Lord Jesus Christ is the greater Samuel. We read of Samuel that the Lord that the Lord enabled Samuel to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. We read of that same very thing as that verse is applied to the Lord Jesus in his young age in Luke chapter 2. The Lord Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He is our prophet who is greater than Samuel. He has kept all of God's commands in ways that Samuel never did he grew up in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation and maintained his integrity throughout. And even far worse than what Samuel experienced, the Lord drove him by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil and he maintained his integrity and never sinned. He continued to speak the word of God in the face of Pharisaic opposition. Opposition that would eventually take him to the death of the cross. And yet he never wavered. He always spoke the truth. He always represented God. He always spoke the word that the people needed to hear regardless of how the people would hear it. Praise the Lord that we have a faithful prophet like Samuel, the Lord Jesus, who will speak the word of God to us, who never sinned, and even to this very day continues to pray for us, continues to speak the word of God, and won't be like Samuel who will grow old and die one day, but ever lives to make intercession for us at God's right hand. Praise the Lord for our faithful prophet, the Lord Jesus. So your prophet has been righteous, Samuel says to the people of Israel. Secondly, he says to them, your God has been gracious. Your God has been gracious in verses 6 to 11. Now Samuel rightly turns his attention away from himself and on to the Lord. He's going to speak in these next verses As he says in verse 7, of all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. And the righteous deeds that he calls attention to is the way that God has faithfully dealt with them throughout every distress they have ever experienced as the people of Israel. So let's think about the two ways God has been gracious to them. First of all, God was gracious to Israel in their distant past. God was gracious to Israel in their distant past. He says in both both verse 6 and verse 11 that when they were in bondage in Egypt in the book of Exodus in the slavery to Pharaoh God raised up leaders for them Moses and Aaron to deliver them from that bondage and what was the people's response? Verse 9 they forgot the Lord their God the same thing is happening in Samuel's day the people are responding to Samuel the same way the people of Israel responded to Moses and Aaron and so God responded in judgment we read in verse 9, the second half. He sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against him. And yet, God still remained gracious, answering them again and again when they cried out to him from their self-imposed distresses. Look again at verses 10 and 11. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We've sinned, verse 11. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. Your God has been gracious, Samuel says. You sinned, your sin got you into the mess you were in. And yet, when you cried out, the Lord came running to you to rescue you again. Why would you want an earthly king? No earthly king's going to treat you like that. So, God was gracious to Israel in their in their distant past, but secondly, God was gracious to Israel in their recent past. Why is Samuel sharing all this? Well, because much like the people of Israel of old, they too have forgotten what God has done for them. They had forgotten that during the days when they tried to use the ark, back in chapter 4 and 5 and 6, that when they cried out to the Lord, what happened? The Lord heard their cries. He went into exile for them. He conquered the Philistines himself by returning the ark back to Israel and having Samuel lead them back to the Lord in chapter 7, where God again was gracious and provided a mediator and a sacrifice and a memorial to his help. And Ebenezer was raised in the land that day that thus far the Lord has helped us. And yet, even in the face of God's providing in their own generation and proving to them, Not just during the days of the Egyptians, but during their own days, that God is capable of being their king and defeating their enemies. They still want a human king. God had been nothing but gracious to them and given them no reason whatsoever to question his ability or his his commitment to care for them as his people. Samuel says, your prophet was righteous, but your God has been gracious. And because of this, thirdly, your sin is serious. Your sin is serious, in verses 12 to 18. Despite God showing how gracious and able he was to care for Israel in both the distant and the recent past, nevertheless, they still were Saul. Samuel recounts how they did so in chapter 11 when he says in verse 12, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. In other words, it didn't have to be this way, Israel. You already had a king. But you took God off the throne, and you gave it to a human. But now that you have a human king, you got an obligation. Look at verse 13. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for. Behold the king, the Lord has set before you. If you will fear the Lord... Serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and, and if both you sorry I'm my, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Simply put, whether this arrangement with Saul works out, Israel is entirely up to you. It's in balls in your court, Israel. You've chosen this lot for yourself. And so we'll see how it goes. Now, two ways that the seriousness of their sin is manifested here. First of all, Israel sinned in what they did. Israel sinned in what they did. Samuel had been faithful to Israel, even telling them the hard truth. Even when he's installing Saul as king back in chapter 10, last week, we read in verses 17 to 18, Samuel's willingness to share with them the hard things. He says, now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I've brought up Israel out of Egypt. I've delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Israel sinned and what they did. Secondly, Israel sinned and why they did it. Israel sinned and why they did it. Samuel was not just passing on what God had told him earlier. Remember, chapter 8, verse 7. Samuel was just informing the people of what God had told him. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're also doing to you. We've seen that the ultimate reason that their sin is so serious is because it is a way of rejecting the rightful authority of God over their life. <clears throat> you may be asking yourself this morning how do I measure, how do I weigh the seriousness of my own sin? Because we don't feel the seriousness of our sin most days. <clears throat> Sorry, been sick this week and it's decided that it's going to start bothering me right now. The seriousness of Israel's sin was found in the fact that they had rejected God from being king over them. Dear ones, that's why our sin is so serious. The seriousness of our sin lies not in what we did, but who we did it to and why we did it. We took the great sovereign authority of the universe who created us and made us for his glory and said, no thanks, I'll live for me. And doing that, is a manifestation of just how we think about the Lord and how we live under his authority, which is not gratefully and not hopefully, but rather, sorry. Trying to block out the mic so you all don't hear all that. Tim, could you grab me another water? I think I'm going to blow through it. I appreciate it. Thank you. So Israel was demanding a king because of a deeper sin under the surface, which is the same sin and the same thing that lies under the surface in our own hearts. It's a refusal to trust God. It is just post-Egyptian idolatry in a new garb for the people of Israel. The people didn't reject Samuel. They rejected God, the God who saved them from their calamities and distresses. And as if we weren't certain how God felt about their sin... Samuel brings the decisive evidence into the court. Thank you, brother. And until now, the people of Israel had only heard Samuel's testimony against their sin. And God had told Samuel and had yet to speak to the people concerning their sin. But now they hear it. He tells them in verses 16 to 18 Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I'll call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. The Lord gave lots of signs, both through Samuel to Saul, right? We saw those last week. But here, God gives a sign to the people of Israel. And it's a sign that their sin is serious. And what they've done will have serious consequences. It leads the people to say in verse 19, we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. They realize what they've done. This chapter reminds us all of how stiff-necked and rebellious and unthankful we can be. We've seen how God saved his people from Egypt and then gave them the promised land and then rescued them from evil. And each time they forgot God and went after other things. And this is not just the story of Israel. It's the story of humanity. It's as old as the garden. It's the story of my life. It's the story of your life. Even as Christians, we're not steadfast in our affection for God. We have thankful days and thankless days. And even in our thankful days, we're not as thankful as we should be. And God gives us a picture of ourselves in stories like this. Maybe there's some among us this morning, no doubt there are, kids, teens, adults, who you just don't recognize the seriousness of your sin. You've grown up in a Christian environment or in a Christian home or around a Christian church, perhaps even a Christian school, and you don't see your sin for what it is. It's easy to slip into those patterns. But I hope you will see this morning that the seriousness of sin is, is in not acknowledging God as king over your life. That is the seriousness of your sin. By refusing to publicly say, Jesus is Lord of my life, submitting to him as king and Christ, and professing that before the church in baptism, you are retaining the right to determine kingship in your life. And that is serious, serious sin. And the Lord has given you a sign that that sin is serious. He's done it by raising Christ from the dead to verify that this king is who he said he was. This king is the one who reigns at God's right hand and will return one day to judge the world in righteousness and save his people once and for all. Dear ones, I want all of us to be among Christ's people on that day. I want those of you within the sound of my voice this morning to be among that number on this day. Bow the knee to King Jesus now. You'll bow one day. You'll either bow in gratitude and gratefulness and humility now, or you'll bow in fear and judgment later. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of mercy. Today is the the day of God's grace. No matter how much you've sinned against Him, you haven't sinned any worse than the people of Israel did. You haven't sinned any worse than the people in Moses' day did when God rescued them. Has not God rescued you time after time? Has not God sustained you in this life for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years? Has not God been gracious to you, faithfully filling your life with undeserved merit, grace, blessing from Him that you didn't earn? It's all been free. It's all been gift. And yet... Have you lived in grateful acknowledgement of your king? Submission to your king? Following your king? No, none of us have. That's why we need Jesus. And he has come to be a gracious king for you. Come to him, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He will give you rest. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Take his yoke upon you and learn from him. He is gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. He is not a king like the nations. He will not just take and take and take from you. One thing God said in the garden, I have forbidden from you. Satan comes along and says, he said you can't touch anything, right? That's the way Satan casts the kingship of Christ. Misery. He just takes from you. No joy. No happiness. No blessing. No fun. Don't believe it. You're in slavery to Satan. He's got you gripped that Jesus is a death wish for your life. It is not in dying to yourself and living for King Jesus, you will find life you could never experience before. You will find life indeed at the end of death to yourself. Your life will begin when you die to yourself. And so I call you to die to yourself so that you might live for Jesus. And in him is life and his life was the light of men. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have life abundantly. Come to Jesus this morning. Why? Because fourthly and finally, your future can be glorious. Your future can be glorious. Just as God, through Samuel, gives to the people of Israel in their day a warning Their prophet has been righteous. Their God has been gracious. Their sin is serious, but that's not where he ends. Your future can be glorious. In verses 19 to 25. Samuel's not just giving Israel a history lesson. And I'm not giving one to you this morning. I am pleading with you as he pled with them in verse 7. How do you plead with people concerning the past? You can't change the past. You can only change the future. Samuel knows that. So what Samuel pleads is for Israel to act in the future like people who believe God will take care of them, as God did in the past. Samuel pleads the past for the sake of the future. So what does the future hold? Believe it or not, yet to be determined. It's entirely up to their response to the Lord. It didn't have to be this way to begin with and doesn't have to be that way in the future. So he tells them, your future can be glorious two ways. First of all, be faithful to God. Be faithful to God. Look at verse 20 and 21. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Now, he'd already summarized their obligations In verses 13 to 15. But he restates them here. He also restates them at the end of the chapter in verses 24 and 25. Only fear the Lord and serve him rightly with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. They're to be faithful to the Lord and not forsake him. In other words, stay on the path of chapter 7. Repent of your idolatry rely on your mediator, rest in a sacrificial substitute, remember God's mercies to you, and follow him. Be faithful to him. But secondly, he says your future can be glorious not only by being faithful to God, but by remembering God has been faithful to you. God is working out his plan through all of this. Remember Genesis thirty-nine or 35 and 49? God had already predicted that Israel would demand a king but he would also given them instructions about what sort of person they were to ask for in Deuteronomy 17. So the rise of the kingdom in Israel, the rise of Saul, is no surprise to God. He would already planned for it long ago. In Genesis 35, he said that a Benjaminite would take the kingship of Israel. And then in Genesis 49, he said that the scepter would not depart from Judah. We're going to see that in chapter 16 as David is chosen by God from the line of Judah to be king. God had planned this, yet it came about through their sin. (laughs) Just like the crucifixion of Jesus was planned for and came about through the sin of the people. Sometimes the greatest things that God does happen through the greatest sins against God. When Israel sought a king, as God said they would, to be like the other nations, they did a great evil. God planned for that evil. And though he brought great good to the world through it, it doesn't make the evil any less evil. But this is the best news. This is the most steadying influence in all the world, dear ones. No matter what happens, whether we did it, somebody else did it, the sky is not falling. God will even take all our mistakes, all our sins, to accomplish his glorious and gracious purpose we do not have to have the cosmic jitters about any decision. Because the kingship of Israel, the fact that Israel had kings, was owing to sin. But it, and it was a great sin, no doubt, for the people to say to their maker and redeemer, we want to have a king like the nations. We don't want God to be our king anymore. We want a human king. That's a great sin. Samuel even calls it that in verse 17, a great wickedness. Nevertheless, What would happen if Israel didn't have a king? No kingship, no Christ. Jesus Christ would not have come as the king of Israel and the son of David and the king of kings. Christ's kingship over Israel and over all the world is not an afterthought in the mind of God. It was not an unplanned response to the sin of Israel as God wrinks his hands wondering, oh no, what am I going to do now? They've asked for a king. He acquiesced. He didn't give up any sovereignty. In fact, it was part of his plan to save the world all along. As the people cry out to the Lord in recognition of their sin, they're met with this amazingly sweet word of comfort in verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that you may, we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And yet, what are the very next words? Look at verse 20. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You've done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. What? Is that a misprint? Shouldn't it say, be very afraid, you have done all this evil? He says, do not be afraid, you have done all this evil. This is pure grace, dear ones. God's grace treats us not the way we deserve but the way we don't deserve. He doesn't say, be afraid, you have done all this evil. We get better than we we deserve. He says, do not be afraid, you have done all this evil. Sometimes we can find ourselves thinking and believing that our condition is irreversible. It's your own sin that got you there. Well, I did it, I'm just going to have to sit in misery now. No way God's going to hear my prayers no way God's going to turn his face toward me anymore. I blew it for the 7,000th time in the same sin I've been struggling with for 55 years. This anger issue, this lust issue, this greed issue, this dog my heels, this gossip issue. Whatever the sin issue is, you might think, well, God's not going to hear my prayer. I've asked for his forgiveness before. But this passage teaches us to not be paralyzed by guilt and despair. There are too many people who have been lost because they gave up too soon on the grace of God. They said, no use, no use. I'm too far gone. God won't forgive me. My guilt is too heavy. Jesus won't hear me. And this paralysis of guilt and depression keeps many people away from God, but don't let it keep you back from God this morning. If you will turn from your evil way, serve the Lord with all your heart, there is all the forgiveness and cleansing you need. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Romans 520. And what basis does Samuel give to the disobedient but repentant Israelites? What hope does he give us who were similarly disobedient but repentant? Look at verse 22, one of the best verses in the entire book, in fact in the entire Bible, I think. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. That is the greatest news in all the world. Don't be, don't be afraid, Israel. My grace towards you has nothing to do with you and everything to do with me. It has everything to do with who I am and nothing to do with who you are. Don't be afraid, for the Lord will not forsake His people for His great namesake. The basis of God's grace is the love that He has for His own glory. God's allegiance to His own name is the foundation of His faithfulness to you. If God ever forsook his supreme allegiance to himself, there would be no grace for us. But if he based his kindness to us on our our worth, there would be no kindness for us. But the basis for our hope is not the worth of our name, but the basis and the infinite worth of God's name. The upholding and the vindication of God's name is the basis of grace. The only reason that sinful people like us can have a king as great and glorious and powerful and good and holy and wise as Jesus without being consumed for our sin is that God planned for the king to die for his subjects and rise again. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father today until all his enemies are put under his feet and all his elect are gathered in from all the people of the earth. Then the end will come. And Christ will appear a second time, Hebrews 9, not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly Waiting for him. Fear not, dear one. Fear not, repentant sinner. Fear not, one who trusts in Christ. If you're looking to Christ for hope, he will not abandon you. For God loves his name. You have taken upon yourself the name of Christ. You are clinging to the Lord Jesus. And just as he did not abandon Christ, he will not abandon you. He will honor the name that Christ has honored. And he will honor the name of all those who lean upon the name of Christ. Because his glory is at stake in the transaction. If he glorified Jesus and Jesus lost all his people, what would that say about God to the universe? He can't even save anybody. Look at him losing all these people. God will not forsake his people. You say, but what? He eventually does forsake Israel, doesn't he? Yes, but it was because of the old covenant stipulations that he established with them to begin with. He said, you forsake me, I'll forsake you. And he did. But he demonstrated generation after generation after generation of patience with Israel before he ever did it. He does it in this book. He goes into exile for them before he ever sends them into exile. And dear ones, we have no fear of such things ever happening to us because we have a new covenant where God will put the fear of himself in our hearts so that we will never depart from him. We'll never depart from him, and he'll never depart from us. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We have that great hope that God will never arrange a situation like he arranged here with the people of Israel for his own people. Because Christ has fulfilled all the requirements of the law. And Christ has stood in our place for our sin. Christ has died for our sins. Christ has lived for our righteousness. And in him, we have been clothed in his righteousness and his sin, our sin debt has been counted to him. So do not fear. God loves his name and God loves you. And God will never stop loving you because God never started loving you. He's loved you from the foundation of the earth and he's manifested it in giving the Lord Jesus Christ to you and for you. For his great name's sake, has pleased the Lord to make us a people for himself. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have made us your people. All of grace. Some of us would recognize, and all of us in our right not right minds, I think, would recognize that we were worse off than the people of Israel even. We had rejected your word time and time again as they had rejected Samuel. We had not treated your grace as costly, but as cheap. We had not recognized our sinfulness of living for ourselves as king as seriously as we needed to. And yet in Christ, you have made our future glorious. You have sent your son who has lived faithfully for us, who has died and rose again on our behalf. And you have pledged in him to us that you will never leave us and never forsake us. Praise your name, Holy Father. Thank you for your commitment to us as your people. Keep us ever faithful to you. How could we ever not submit to you and live for you as king when you have been so gracious to us and you continue to give and give and give and give? Lord, help us to recognize your grace in our lives and help that grace to lead us to joyful living under your kingship, both now and for eternity. We we ask this all in the name of our risen and reigning king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.